Chapter 8 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 A Desert Ride, Thousand Palm Canyon to Coachella Valley. This was Sunday, and I was glad that the pasturage would allow of keeping it a day of rest a thing not always possible even with the best of intentions in these regions where necessities of forage or water often drive the unwilling traveler on during the morning i explored my surroundings and was delighted to find myself among the stately groves that give this canyon its name of thousand palms there are several distinct clusters each of many hundreds growing at short intervals and in side ravines are smaller groups each showing some feature of charm, strangeness, or picturesque arrangement. In one, a narrow gallery of ochre-hued rock that gave a wonderful depth to the complementary blue of the sky, I came upon six palms that grew in a compact block, as wide and thick as it was high, thatched to the ground with dead, hanging fans. One could cut into the mass as one would into a cheese, and a fine cell could be carved out of it by a desert hermit who didn't mind scorpions and tarantulas for neighbors. I climbed a hill to the east, from whence I could overlook a good part of the palms' territory. They stood like an army, an actual forest of palms, as unique a site as can be found in our country, and as beautiful in its strange, fascinating way. No other plant grows with them, the straight, dark pillars stand solidly on a floor, deep laid with dry, fallen leaves which slide and crackle under the foot. As I moved among the stiff, uniform shapes, I felt a sense of that old Egyptian awe, the awe of overpowering mass and repetition, of monotony carried to the point of terror. It would have seemed quite in place to meet here one of those nightmarish processions we see on obelisks or to discover faint hieroglyphs carved on those red, pylon-like shafts. In this canyon, I first found an attractive little plant, Atroplex hymenolytra, which I have seen sold on the streets of Los Angeles at Christmas under the name of Desert Holly. It is a low shrub with stiff, holly-like leaves and the characteristic brittleness of desert brush. The whole plant is dead white, and looks much like a branch of true holly that has been dipped in whitewash. The day was warm, 106 degrees by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I drank often of the irresistible though unpleasant water, and even managed a bath which left me with the sensation of being made of old India rubber. In the evening, the mystery of the night wandering mules was explained when two men came up the canyon. They were surprised to see me, having had no idea of there being anyone in that direction for twenty miles. I learned that they had ranches, or rather claims, in the valley below, and were engaged in developing water with a view to irrigation. I was hospitably urged to move down to the camp where one of them was working, a mile or so down the canyon, and strong inducement was held out in the promise of better water. Accordingly, in the morning I moved. My friend's camp was pitched at the edge of one of the palm groves and consisted of a roomy tent, a forge, a rough stable, and a mountain of debris the accumulation of three years of batching. For that term he had lived here most of the time alone, 
working at his water rights, tunneling, sinking shafts, running drifts and ditches, gradually gathering up the underground flow that was betokened here and there by seepages and beds of tules, a life of cheerless solitude plus hardest labor plus purgatorial heat. His task was nearly done, he told me, for he now had two hundred inches of water almost ready to be piped down to his half-section of land down in the valley at Edom, significant name, where he hoped to grow dates, figs, and early grapes for the tables of millionaires. If spontaneous kindness to a stranger deserves reward, my good Edomites' acres should soon be as fruitful as the land of Goshen. I was struck by the Arabian look of this locality. High-walled gullies of red or ochre earth meet and interlace, their bottoms filled with coarse gravel and boulders mixed with blue-gray smoke-bush and snutted mesquite and cat-claw. Among birds, only the raven seems to tolerate this desolate spot, and his morose hue, tragical voice, and general graveyard air do nothing to enliven one's impression. The eye, discouraged by the crudity of the scene, instinctively dwells upon the palm whenever it is in sight, overlooking its sameness of form for the relief of its grace, finish, and appearance of culture. From Thousand Palm Canyon, I struck southwesterly into the open desert. My friend's little brook rippled for half a mile out of the canyon, then suddenly sank into the sands. San Jacinto was again in view, but purpled by distance. His load of snow seemed noticeably less than at my last sight of it only four days ago. A few miles to the west, there is a tract of dunes that looked worth visiting. A huge quantity of almost unmixed sand has accumulated here and has been worked up into remarkable forms. Wind and the principle of cohesion operating together have resulted in an arrangement of domes, half-domes, waves, crevasses, all the shapes that snowdrifts take, but with a characteristic wind ripple in addition. The glistening whiteness of the sand carried out the likeness to snow, but the sharpness of the breakage lines is what made the sight so interesting. Long curves, beautiful in their ease of contour, led up to keen, clean-cut rims from which steep slopes ran down at sharp angle. From these edges there was always blowing a wavering veil of sand as fine as the spume stripped by the wind from the wave crests at sea. It was fascinating to stand in that universe of sand. The scriptural phrase, like the sands of the seashore for multitude, seemed almost weak in view of these great billows like the storm waves of mid-ocean. Here was not only a shore, but a sea of sand. The scene stamped itself strongly on my mind. The strange contours, differing from those of other materials, the shadow masses of clear blue, the amethyst of the nearer ridges of San Jacinto, the deep afternoon purple of the great mountain itself, the gleam of mingled snow and cloud along its crest, over all the glowing sky, too luminous and aerial to be fairly expressed as blue. I had been among these dunes once before, when a youngster from a ranch on the farther side had guided me to the edge of the tract. I was busied with camera and notebook, not noting my companion, when a patter of charging feet and a Comanche yell made me jump. It was only my guide enjoying a desert toboggan slide. 
he raced to the edge of a thirty-foot dune threw up his heels and took a header down the sharp incline running sand at every pore he pronounced it bully and recommended me to try it adding that it was one of his and his sister's regular forms of exercise but i was past twelve and found it easy to refrain my way lay now more to the south where a dozen miles away was the little railway town of indio this lower northwestern arm of the desert into which thousand palm canyon issues was intended to be named the conchilla valley from the myriads of little shells that powdered the ground mixed with some of larger size relics of the brackish lake that for a long period filled this great depression by some error the name got upon the maps as coachella and the blunder has been retained until it is now signed and sealed beyond hope of correction a botanical feature hereabouts was the smoke tree parocella spinosa which appeared in great numbers it is the most prominent plant of the dry desert watercourses and in some of them grow so thickly as to form an apology for a forest though a forest of a strange kind and serpentine form it was at this time in full bloom carrying a multitude of small pea-like blossoms of dark bright blue from which the plant is sometimes called indigo bush i have heard it called desert cedar also though it would be hard to imagine anything less like the sumptuous cedar than this spectral thing blanched and leafless the other name smoke tree describes it well though it is more bush than tree seldom over twelve feet in height the resemblance to a column of smoke is plain enough at little distance at this season it made a beautiful sight in its dress of gray and blue each plant was humming with wild bees and other insects that were making the most of the honey harvest and the fallen blossoms had gathered in every hollow like drifts of blue snow a few miles brought us to the edge of cultivation a small farm appeared isolated in the waste but looking thrifty and attractive glad of a chance to exchange words with my kind sure to be interesting now that they were so scarce i halted at the gate till the good man appeared he seemed as keen as i for a chat inquisitive moreover as to my business and would have me dismount and come to his shady veranda good man indeed i should name him heartily pressing me to put up for the night or in fact as long as i would when i accepted the smaller offer that's all hunky-dory then he cried and seizing his hay-fork led the way to the stable kawea close at his heels for he knew the omen and had already had the pensive charm of the good old days the wife proved as kind as the husband and i shared their supper and breakfast as well as the hopes trials and prospects of their desert farming venture their water supply was a well and pump operated by a gasoline engine through all the center part of this valley water is plentiful at no impossible depth the water is pure soft and good that from the deeper wells is unusually warm often as much as a hundred degrees making the greatest of boons to the much enduring folk who live and work under conditions for the most part decidedly onerous an illustration of these people's hardship had comic details the wife was going to the coast for the summer in a few days this is the rule with desert women folk though not an invariable one 
and she must leave her husband alone to face the heat and keep the farm alive. But she had a plan, which she confided in me, for his comfort. She would send down from town a quantity of canvas or burlap, which was to be strung on wires along the windward side of the veranda. The poor, panting man was to take a seat there, lightly arrayed, and spray water on the screen with a hose. The resulting evaporation would temper the breeze to a fair degree of comfort. He might even, she pointed out, have pipe or newspaper in the other hand, a sybaritic touch that strongly appealed to me. In the following weeks, when warmth was plentiful and water scarce with me, I thought many a time with envy of my friends sitting with hose and pipe in solitary luxury, or, perchance, comfortably soaking in the barrel at the corner of the house, which he had pointed out to me with pride as forming a simple but admirable bathtub. The burlap and hose combination, by the by, plays a prominent part in desert household economy. Where ice is not to be had, the housewife resorts to the homemade refrigerator. Nothing more nor less than a skeleton box or frame provided with shelves and covered with burlap. It is placed in a shaded outdoor spot and water allowed to drip on it, so as to keep it damp on all sides. The evaporation is so rapid in this dry, hot air that the temperature within is lowered by many degrees, and even milk or butter may be kept good for a reasonable time. No doubt it was this simple invention that gave the good lady a clue. If a pound of butter could thus find relief, why not a farmer? Along the foothills that extend in a dull, mud-hued wall along the east side of the valley, groups and files of palms grow in an almost continuous line. A visit to them proved interesting. The erosive effect of the storms that fall on the mountains, usually in late summer, are seen here in sharp barrancas and ravines filled with water-worn debris. The curiously seamed face shown by these hills at a few miles' distance becomes on near approach a wilderness of rugged gullies that meet and cross at sharp angles and at gradients steep enough to make the short climb quite laborious. Huge blocks of rock, carried by storm hydraulics from the higher back ranges, lie embedded in the local clay. Vegetation is scanty except for the flourishing clusters of palms. Standing in picturesque fashion in alcoves and on benches, these suggest, even to a mind with no bent for real estate speculation, the thought, what ideal sites for houses. From the shade of these elevated groves, the fortunate owner would look out over the wide, sunny levels to where, in the south, the Salton Sea matches the turquoise sky, or, more westerly, to where the great peaks of Santa Rosa, San Jacinto, and San Gorgonio rise in fine succession. There is attraction, too, in the thought that under the progenitors of these palms, which mark the shoreline of the ancient sea, the earliest Californian may have moored his canoe while he landed to feast on prehistoric clam and turtle. In one alcove, a recent hurricane had overthrown a number of the palms, strewing the ground as if with ruined monuments. From the eagle feathers that littered the place, it seemed that the bird of solitude finds these silent groves with their vast outlook a congenial resort. 
Continuing toward Indio, I came to one of the young date plantations that in the last few years had become a prominent feature of the Coachella Valley, and that seemed to indicate that a decade or so hence, this region will be one great date garden. The chugging of a gasoline engine guided me to the place. It was so good to see the generous stream of water that was being led in furrows to the thirsty young deglets and quadrawis that I asked the friendly caretaker if I might camp nearby. The request was freely granted, and a shady thicket of mesquite pointed out as the best spot. The thicket turned out to be one great house-like tree, which I shared with a family of quail, a pair of thrashers, a rabbit or two, a rabble of rats and mice, and an Egyptian plague of flies. It was idyllic at dusk to listen to the dozy murmuring of the quail, apparently confessions of penitent cheapers answered with maternal forgiveness while the evening star rose above the gloaming mountains and the breeze came cooler from the graying east i may remark here a noticeable fact regarding the climate of the desert even on days when the thermometer hung in complete shade would register a hundred and five degrees to a hundred and ten degrees walking was not especially fatiguing and this in spite of the drawback of the looseness of the soil. It is to be explained, of course, by the dryness of the air, through which the sun's rays strike with scorching, yet not oppressive effect. It is a sharp, direct heat, like that of a fire, and not in any degree like that of steam. Perspiration is profuse, but evaporation keeps pace with it, and when shade is reached, coolness at once enwraps the traveler in an air-bath as soft and grateful as evening dusk. A strong wind blew all night from the northwest. Rats made my mesquite thicket undesirable as a sleeping place, but I spread my blankets in its partial shelter and passed a comfortable night, awakening occasionally to enjoy the moderate breeze, which came in playful puffs and sifted me lightly with sand. Kawea, picketed close by, stood stoically, tail to the wind, until dawn, when he responded promptly to my whistle and whinnied for his morning sugar. All next day the wind blew without cessation, filling even the higher strata of the air with sand, until in the north and west only the snowy heads of the twin mountains remained in view. They seemed like floating clouds anchored aloft to mark the pass of San Gorgonio for the sailors of the new aerial world routes. By mid-afternoon, they too had faded behind the brown sand haze, and sunset came with a bar of turbid crimson, sharply met by the usual aquamarine of the summer evening sky. Young and slender, the moon moved gracefully down the field of lucent green, a lily princess in a caliph's garden. The little town of Indio is an example of the many California settlements whose hopes have been blasted by the rise of an upstart neighbor. Indio is old for a California town and a desert one, and has existed as a division point since the building of the New Orleans to San Francisco Railway. But when, a few years ago, desert settlers began to arrive in earnest, and the fight commenced which has already turned considerable tracks from gray to green, a new town, christened Coachella, was started three miles to the south and has measurably prospered, partly at the expense of the older place. I stayed for a day or two about Indio, finding barely tolerable quarters at a wretched hotel. 
The sleeping accommodation consisted of a cot bed with mattress and sheets on an upper veranda. My request for a blanket for emergency apparently was considered unreasonable, for the article was not supplied, and in fact proved not to be needed at this season of early June. Indio supports a weekly newspaper at, and my arrival as a stranger being duly announced, I was looked up by an old Los Angeles acquaintance, now turned desert farmer, who urged that I make my next stop at his farm. Here again, a mesquite thicket made an ideal camping place. The only drawback was the presence of a horde of the insects, locally called locusts, really cicadas. These pests kept up all day a shrill, monotonous hiss, like the falsetto shriek of imps, which I soon came to loathe. There was compensation, though, in the friendship of the kindly people and the sight and sound of happy children. I do not forget, either, the melons and cucumbers, tomatoes, chilies, and eggplants that for a notable week displaced my daily round of beans, rice, and dull, insipid flapjacks. The country hereabout is the pick of the Coachella Valley farming region. Looking south and west from camp, I saw little but greenness. Only isolated spots of gray gave token of the desert. On all sides, ranks and clumps of fast-growing cottonwoods outlined the stations of farms, and everywhere along the roads one came on bands of chattering Mexicans or silent Indians at work in shady corners, sorting and packing into crates heaps of onions, cantaloupes, or tomatoes, or met wagons creeping to the railway with juicy freight of watermelons. Plantations of young dates met the eye on all sides, and here and there were palms already bearing clusters of ripening fruit so suggestive of the ancient Assyrian fashion of hairdressing that I think the idea must have been copied from this source. One hears wondrous tales of the profits that are being made by the owners of these first fruiting palms. The pioneer date experimenter, Mr. Fred Johnson, showed me four trees from which he had realized in the previous year between four hundred and five hundred dollars. It must be remembered that in these early days of American-grown dates, they bring the price of a novelty as much as a dollar a pound for the best fruit, which is a temporary condition, of course. Tempted by these phenomenal figures, desert farmers are raising seedling date plants by hundreds of thousands, while those who can afford it are planting offshoots, that is, young palms imported from the famous regions of Tunis, Algeria, Arabia, and Persia. The industry is well past its experimental stage, and my forecast of the future of this valley is that, twenty years from now, it will be a waving forest of palms with millionaires competing for acreage in the renowned date gardens of the United States. From this locality come also the earliest of figs, apricots, melons, and grapes. The growth of these crops in this once despised soil is truly miraculous. I saw figs of ten or twelve years, monarchial in trunk and house-like in spread of branch, while vines at one year from planting were bearing promising clusters. At the government agricultural station I found some novelties which are still in the experiment stage. For instance, jujubes, pistachios, even coconuts. Both official and private enterprise are engaged on these problems, and from all sorts of out-of-the-way places, 
strangers are constantly arriving who will be encouraged to become good american citizens not only plant strangers either for other questions arise such as that of the blastophagia wasp an insignificant-looking insect who possessed the secret of why that best of figs the smyrna refused to mature its fruit in this country and who for many a year played hide-and-seek all over the levant with our agricultural experts it is the romance of agriculture that one sees here in process of becoming the commonplace of the future the devices to which the white population resort for comfort in the hot months are various and amusing beds lurk in unexpected places wherever shade or coolness or protection from wind is to be had there a cot with a mattress and sheets seldom more may be looked for in a garden at indio i noted what looked like a rather roomy rabbit hutch but proved to be the six foot six sleeping room of the owner of the place at a nearby farm there was a more elaborate arrangement a large well-furnished room electric lighted and fitted with telephone the roof and walls being all of wire screening and the bed shaded from early morning sun by a broad-leafed castor bead plant everybody of course sleeps out of doors to escape the heat which during the daytime fills the timbers and furniture of the house to the saturation point to be slowly given off into the cooler air during the night dress is cut to narrow limits especially by those who work outdoors and who are fortunate in having the kind of skin that the sun tans instead of flaying i recall two young swedes whom i met at a ranch near indio who made quite an artistic effect in brown and blue curly-headed hatless and encumbered only with shorts of blue denim their skins were a fine pie-crust brown that almost made my mouth water and their bright blue eyes were matched to a shade by the hue of the brief cerulean garments my heavy sombrero was often the subject of remark the comment being that i must suffer from its weight true i did so but in spite of that i feel sure that its thick close felt which thoroughly shuts out the sun is far better than the thin straw helmet which is in general favor and through which the sun's rays pass only half disarmed to my half-pound cowboy i owe it that though constitutionally a sun-hater and lover of cloud and fog i stand the desert summer with much less discomfort than i might reasonably expect i offer my experience for what it may be worth the dusty street of coachella yielded one or two characteristic items such as a humorous placard which offered hot baths at the ice factory the spectacle of a bed hung in the air above the community water tank at three stories elevation and a fleeting vision of the local banker in rolled-up shirt sleeves returning from lunch bearing a wedge of watermelon with him into the financial shades End of chapter eight